Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Merry Christmas, everyone. I trust that you had a great time uh, together with family and friends over these last couple of days. Um, we are going to be in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, this morning as we open the Scriptures. And I just want to echo uh, something that Pastor Tom was already talking about. And this next year, we're, we're inviting you to journey with us through the Bible. Uh, this, this isn't about just finishing it, like... like it is about reading through it, um, but it's not about check mark. I read everything and I'm a better person now because we can expose ourselves to a lot of things and they not really change us because we have cold hearts to what God wants to do. Our, our ask and our invitation to you is will you open the scriptures regularly? And we're going to follow this plan to get us through the Bible in a year. It's like three to four chapters per day, but the point is not to finish. The point is to get to know God better. That's why we do it. Uh, and we are looking forward to having some, some moments. We're going to pick one Sunday night, Tom mentioned, uh, out of a month. It's going to be a Sunday night, 6 p.m. Uh, I think the third Sunday night in January is the first one. where We're going to say, here's where we have been. And we're going to try to help tie a couple of the threads together and then say, what does this mean for our lives? How do we walk this out? And what I love is every time you go through God's Word, you glean something new about who God is and what He wants for your life. And so we invite you into that. Uh, there's something like 5,000, or 500,000, sorry, 525,900 minutes per year, all right? Somewhere around in there, according to Siri. 525,949 minutes, technically, according to Siri uh, on my phone. And it's, it's always... Um, it's always kind of sobering to think about because on Sundays I get this notification on my phone that says you spent however many minutes on your phone this last week and that tells me how I spent the time. As we think about the time that we have before us and we don't know what the future holds but as we think about that time and how we would purpose it, it's my hope and prayer that we come to the end of next year, God willing, uh, and we say, wow God, in these hundreds of thousands of minutes you have met us as we've engaged your word, engaged your truth. Uh, I want my life to better reflect um, what God says and what God wants, and in opening the Scripture is the beginning point for that. And so um, we are going to open the Scriptures today, Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at the story of a group of magi who come to worship the king. Uh, a couple years ago, um, there was something that came through the area. It was, it was a big deal. Uh, it was the solar eclipse. Do you remember the year of the solar eclipse? couple of you do. Okay. Uh, the solar eclipse, like people took off work to go watch this. It was actually really cool. Uh, this is a photo I took at Vinralty Park uh, of the solar eclipse. And uh, we had like one of those contraptions that we made as a part of school to be able to look at the sun without looking at the sun and hurting our eyes. I know some friends even within the church who would travel like out of the state to find the optimal site to see this. Um, as a Christian and as Christians, it's amazing to think that God created the whole world. That's what Scripture says, that He created the whole world and everything in it. And when we were going through this, it's like, wow, just think about how this is going like this and this is going like this. And wow, God, what an amazing thing. 
Few things take my breath away, like standing out underneath the sky during the daytime with the beautiful blue in the, in the clouds going by, or during the nighttime and you have the incredible constellations that you can see, the, the stars, the planets sometimes in various seasons, and especially when there's not a lot of light pollution, you just look up at the heavens and you go, oh my goodness, what an amazing God we serve. The, the, the ancient peoples, for example, the Babylonians, they believed that God's communicated with the earth through the sky, all right? The sky's been a, a thing of intrigue for many years. They believe that the gods, lowercase g, communicated the, with the earth through the sky, and that the task of the astrologers, one scholar says, was to learn that language so that they can interpret it for their constituents. And so Babylon is actually known as a, as a hub of astronomy and astrology and all these different kinds of things having to do with the sky. We find that in, Daniel, in Daniel's um, book, chapter 2. But all these things should lead us to this question. When we consider the heavens, what should be our response? And I want to suggest to you it's worship. Psalm 8 says this, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, the psalmist says, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You, you, make, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And so like, like there's this response of praise, but then this acknowledgement that God has actually made humans in order to be stewards of the earth. But the psalm ends with this. It doesn't end with, oh my goodness, we're such great stewards. It ends with, oh Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We come to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. We're introduced to a group of people. Uh, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Herod. We're introduced to some wise men or magi. We're also introduced to some scribes and some, um, some priests of the people, in addition to the normal characters of the Christmas story. But we're going to look at them today. And so if you would, and if you're able to, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Matthew chapter 2 says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. And when King Herod saw this or heard this, he, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen in the east. And it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When, the, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshiped him. 
Then they opened their treasures and presented him with, go- with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that tell the story of the coming of Jesus to this earth. And God, we thank you for what we can learn from them, for how you reveal truth to us through your word and through your spirit. And God, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to set upon the truth that you have given us. We thank you, God, that you are unchanging, that you are faithful to your word, and that you hear all those who call upon your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So, we are looking at, at this, and it's important to start kind of where the text starts here. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, okay? Uh, something that's easy to really kind of gloss past is something that's important to know what's going on. If I were to tell to you, uh, if I were to say to you that um, this happened during the presidency of Donald Trump, all right? You'd have a certain context to frame it. If I told you that this happened during the time of the presidency of President Barack Obama, you would have some sort of cultural context to hang your hat on. Um, no, that is also going on in, in this passage. In the days of King Herod says something about what is going on during this time. Herod was a king. He was an important king. He, he was a powerful king, and he ruled all over Judea. He had a bunch of sons that, that the kingdom then split into a couple different components after his death, and then they ruled. But Herod had a strong grip upon the kingdom of Judea at this time. And, and he was backed by Rome. He, he wasn't just there by himself. He was backed by Rome, knowing that as long as he made Rome happy, Rome would pretty much be happy with him. But, but King Herod was a bit of an um, interesting person. Um, he was an amazing builder and craftsman. In fact, there, there's things still standing today, like even part of the temple, where, where Herod was a part of laying that, that foundation or that, that building that stands there. There's these things called Herod stones, and they're like five of me wide if I go like this, and they're like one of me tall, and they still wonder, how on earth did they really get those cut out of the quarry in the mines and up here on the Temple Mount and put into place because they fit perfectly like a glove? Herod was known for his building. Um, he, he's the king of Judah. He's half Jewish, and he's half what's called Idumean. And the reason why that matters is that he's king, but he's not by birth king. One of the things we've looked at in recent weeks is that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. The, the line of David, which is part of the tribe of Judah, is a kingly line. Um, and Herod was not of the kingly line, and yet he was king. He did not have a birthright claim to the Davidic throne. As part of his building, he built this amazing thing out on uh, the water of the Mediterranean Sea, this amazing palace, several other fortresses throughout the land. And in fact, he built up fortresses in order that if someone were to come and try and take him or, or try and kill him and take his throne, he had somewhere strong where he could go to to hold up and to fight them off. One of the places that he captures during one of these times when he's being chased by another 
um, opponent, I guess you could say, or, or another want-to-be ruler, was a place not too far from Bethlehem where Jesus was born. It was a place called the Herodium. Um, this is the Herodium. This is a big fortress that Herod built. It's amazing. What you see in the foreground there is a swimming pool that he built up. And yeah, then they had to bring water. And just imagine pool owners having to fill that one every time it needed to have a couple inches put in. You have the pool there. You also have a bathhouse that is built on this layer. Um, Here's an aerial view of the Herodium. So this is like looking top down. And it's amazing. You can see parts of the fortress up here. And, and this is built up. Um, here's a part, or here's a section of Herod's tomb. This was part of the Herodium. The Herodium is the burial place of King Herod. And so here's where they believe his tomb was, and you can see it kind of on the side. The, the amazing thing is that he built up all these things. And um, the Herodium, for example, was very impressive. It, it had two 100-foot-high concentric circular walls forming the exterior of the fortress, which was 200 feet in diameter. So it's pretty big. But not only that, the, the walls of the Herodium were later encased with earth. You can kind of maybe, maybe see how that would take place from this photo. They were later encased with earth to within the one-third of their tops. In other words, what Herod did is he quite literally built a small mountain around his fortress at the Herodium. And he did all this to pres- preserve his life, preserve his kingdom, and all these things. Herod was, in many ways, a crazy person. H- Herod... Um, was very self-preserving and suspicious of anyone who might threaten his rule. In fact, during one of uh, the portions of his reign, he had one of his wives killed. He had one of his mother-in-laws killed. And he had several sons also killed because he felt like they were a threat to his rule. It was so severe that one scholar writes, and this is a pretty famous quote in some of the ancient literature, um, that Augustus, who was the emperor, the Roman emperor, so, so like Herod's boss, once said this um, bitterly, that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. All right? So when the text says, in the days of King Herod, you have to understand this is a person who creates tension everywhere he goes, especially if you oppose him. And we need to feel the tension of a crazed ruler being confronted by a group of magi who say, we are looking for not just a baby, but we are looking for a newborn king of the Jews so that we can go and we can worship him. When Herod hears this, man, he is threatened. He's threatened to his core. He's going, "What, what king is going to threaten my rule? We need to feel the fear and the trepidation that came from his leadership within the region. Any threat put the entire people on edge. That's why it says that um, when King Herod hears this news, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. All right? It wasn't just King Herod who was disturbed. He hears about this news, and everybody knows about it, and they are disturbed, probably for a host of different reasons, including what's he going to do next. So we're introduced to King Herod in the days of King Herod. And then there's these magi. Um, my text here says wise men. Uh, it's, it's transliterated magi, the, the, the plural of 
Magi is Magi, I think. Um, but these are, these are people. Now, Scripture doesn't say where exactly they're from. They're, they're people of nobility. They're, they're people of priestly line, we believe. Um, and they're probably from one of two different areas. The first area is this. Persia or Babylon. That's probably the most common area that people tend to believe that they are from. And the region for this is, or the reason for this is because this is a leading region for astronomical knowledge. And there's also a strong Jewish heritage in this area because of the exile that happens in the course of Daniel's story. Um, the other place where they could be from, where some scholars believe that they're from, is from Egypt. And the reason that scholars might tend to go that route is because they bring three gifts. They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And frankincense and myrrh in particular are two very expensive, costly items that come from the southern Arabian area. So they, scholars go, maybe he came from, they came from here because that's where um, all these gifts that they bring come from. What matters is not exactly where they're from, but what did they come to do? In the ancient period, the Magi um, denoted someone with a reputation of having special supernatural knowledge or abilities. Um, Some scholars believe that they are of Jewish origin because of the proximity of the Israelite exiles to Babylon who served as wise men and advisors to the king. So like Daniel goes and he's carried off and he serves in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and all these kings of Babylon and and Persia, Medo-Persia. And he becomes one of the trusted advisors, one of the top people, even though he is a Jewish... um, man. He's serving in these non-Jewish courts. And so some scholars believe that these might be people who have a Jewish background to them. We don't know that for sure. Um, Whatever these details, it is important to know that these were men of wealth, wisdom, and influence in their culture. All right? When they showed up on the scene, Herod went, why are you here? And why are you coming to worship another king? And that mattered. It wasn't just a random person. These were people of wealth, wisdom, and influence in their culture. But these were people also who witnessed something. Um, They they saw a star in the east, is the way one translation puts it. Um, Some might translate it, they saw the star at its rising. And it was believed at that time that, that the arrival of a new star meant that a king was born. And they come to search out a king that has been born. These men, not likely um, kings, but people of noble or priesthood backgrounds, they, they witnessed the star that's a part of a revelation and a working from God that something significant was about to take place. But not only are they people with wealth, wisdom, and, and, and a degree of power, not only do they see a star, they actually act upon what they have seen. They not only witnessed it, they traveled to Herod, likely who is living in Jerusalem or that area, Jerusalem or Jericho, where he had palaces, and they inquire about the soon coming king. And the text gives us why. It says, we have seen his star in the east or at its rising, and we have come to worship him. They've come with intention. They've come with focus. They've come to say, it's not about us. It's about this king. So, they meet with Herod, and um, 
Herod hears this. He's disturbed all Jerusalem with him. He summons the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes of the people. These were religious leaders. And he asks them, he says, where does the scripture say the Messiah must be born? And they quote to him, there's a prophecy. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Another one of God's promises. There's going to be a leader and it's going to come out of Bethlehem. And they say, King Herod, Bethlehem is the place. Herod then, verse 7, secretly summons the wise men and asks them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, go and search carefully. When you find him, report back to me so I too can go and I can worship him. So imagine Herod is in his palace. And here's maybe, here's a mock photo uh, that was done in the 1930s, kind of before some of the buildup of the land had taken place. Uh, they did this kind of photo shoot or painting shoot, I guess it is. Uh, and, and they're trying to get, what would this look like? All right, so here you have a magi, and he's on one of the roads leading um, to that area from Jerusalem, going towards Bethlehem. Um, here's another, oh, did I go past it? Nope, that's my, that's my one photo. Um, so so the, the Magi are headed this way. And as they go, they are, um, you can imagine Herod watching them leave. They're going down across the valley. They're going south about six miles to where Bethlehem is. And as they head down that way, um, he's watching them. I imagine thinking, Oh, I wonder where this child is going to be. Is it going to be in Bethlehem? And how are we going to respond if there is indeed a child? I love how Dr. William Barclay uh, phrases this narrative. He, he says there, there's three major groups of characters. You have Herod. You have you have these priests and scribes that enter in with this information about here's where the Messiah would be born and then, of course, you have the Magi. So imagine, the Magi are going to Bethlehem. They're going to go meet the child, as it says a little bit later, which we'll look at in a moment. And as they're searching and they come upon their search, you have Herod here. Dr. Barclay describes Herod's reaction of one of hatred and hostility. You'll, you'll notice that it says that in verse 8, he wants them to go search carefully for the child, but when they find him, he wants to know about it so he can too go worship him. Now, if you're just reading this devoid of the entire context, you might be going, oh, he wants to go worship this baby too. Um, but note that he is deeply disturbed and his intention for worship is likely not the same of these magi. His one is of hatred and hostility. Herod was afraid that this little child was going to interfere with his life, his place, his power, his influence, and therefore his first instinct was to destroy him. And we find this, we won't look at it today, but you find the story of the massacre of the innocents in verses 16 through 18. And you read it and it just breaks your heart because you think, Oh my goodness, look at what Herod did in order to try and secure his throne. Herod was a person who uh, inquired of these Jewish scribes to discern what the scripture said, but he secretly su summons the Magi to discern the time frame 
And for Herod, it's all about protecting his throne because when it comes to what Jesus would be and do on this earth, you have people like Herod who are absolutely and adamantly opposed to any working of God within the midst. So much so that they would go on the offense on the offensive to try to obliterate it in every way, shape, and form. There are people in the world who are hating, who, who, are, who have great hatred towards the gospel and hostility to the things of God. All right, that's one character. That's one group of characters. There's another group of characters, and these are the chief priests and scribes, and we only get to see them for a brief moment. Like, they they pop up on the screen, and they pop down off the screen, but it's interesting because they have a certain degree of knowledge. Herod summons them, and he says, where does it say a child will be born, a ruler will be born? And they give this prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures, which they knew, but they leave it there. Their reaction is one of essentially complete indifference. When they hear there's been a star in the east and these magi have traveled no small mile to come and see where this little babe king would be at. They say, be in Bethlehem if it's anywhere. But so far as we know, they simply stay in Herod's court. And they're indifferent to any of the things that happen after that, so long as it protects their lives and their walk. When told the news, they knew the prophecy, but it didn't matter to them. The chief priests and scribes could be people, could describe people who become so wrapped up in their daily lives, their rituals, their routines, that God coming to dwell within them, God fulfilling his word, pales in comparison to their agendas and their desires. In fact, they just as soon go about their day, whether it's work or school or family, holidays, even very religious activities that they would have done by going to the temple regularly to teach and to offer sacrifices. But to them, what God is wanting to do and what God is doing through Jesus coming to this earth as a baby was of complete indifference. Finally, you have the wise men. And they came with a very specific intention, right? If they're from the, Bur- the Babylon, Persia area, they're traveling several hundred miles in order just to come to this region of Israel. They're coming a long ways. They come up, they follow the river, they come down probably like Abraham did uh, because that was the best way to have food and water and all the things that they needed. And as they come on this weary journey and their next day and next day and next day, they come, they're like, oh, the prophecy says it could be in Bethlehem. You could imagine the excitement because something that they had purposed so many days and months before was starting to have a bit of sight to it. And so they come, they, they, they hop on one of these roads heading down towards Bethlehem. And as they approach Bethlehem, they look. And the scripture actually says that as they come, there it was, verse 9, the star that they had seen in the east. And it says that the star led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Not just because they could hop off their camel, if they're riding a camel, because it probably would have hurt after that many days. Not just because they finally had a place to camp for the night, but because the purpose of why they came was right before them. They had come to worship, and worship they would do. The scripture says that they entered the house 
they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Now, I love it because they have gifts that they, they, that they brought with them. But the text doesn't say they walked in, they saw, and they said, here are our gifts. They walked in, they saw, and they fell down to their knees and they worshiped. These men were people who were willing to give up personal ambition, pride, to lead with worship, and to bring everything they had after that to say, you are worthy, king. These men gathered themselves to worship. And the word worship here is, is the word in Greek, which means to worship, to prostrate oneself, or to bow down. So it's, it's got this image. It's got this image of these are wise men. These are people of nob- nobility. These are people of wisdom. These are people who, when they walk in the room, people are a little bit hushed. And they say, what do you have to share with us? Because you are endowed with wisdom. And these are people who walk in to this house where Jesus is at. And they simply do this. And in getting on their knees, the purpose of, the word is proskuneo. The the purpose of bowing or prostrating oneself is to recognize that someone else is greater than you. And they come before this child, and the first thing they do is they hit their knees. Isn't that fascinating? And then it says, oh, and then there's some gifts, right? But just think of this contrast. You have Herod, who is paranoid and willing to defend and even to go against anything of God that he possibly can in order to thwart the work of God. You've got priests and scribes who, who know the prophecy, but they stay where they are, and yet you have these group of people, probably not three. It could have been three. It could be more. We don't know. Uh, it doesn't say. It just says three gifts. You've got these men who've traveled a long distance. Blood, sweat, tears, nights, sleeping underneath the stars, waiting for where God is going to lead them next and what he's going to do. And they come and they see the child and they fall to their knees. This is an amazing response. An amazing response. In Matthew's gospel, this word for worship is used several times. One of the areas it's used is uh, in a couple chapters later, Jesus is being tempted by the adversary, by Satan. And uh, Satan says to him, if you bow down before me, if if you take the knee and you bow down before me, I will give you all of the earth that you see, which is under my control because of its brokenness. Jesus responds to Satan and he says, um, here's what the scripture says from Deuteronomy 6, you shall worship, same word, the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The other idea behind this word worship, not just bowing or prostrating oneself, but the word worship from a Hebraic context means to serve. It means to say, here is, here I am, all of me, God, would you use this for your glory because I'm willing to 
give everything for your fame. And the great commandment that Jesus teaches is one about service and worship. He says, for example, um, when Jesus is asked the greatest commandment, he also quotes from Deuteronomy, and he says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What matters first for the individual, for the person made in God's image, friends, me and you, is that in view of who God is, we come to worship. We come to worship. We come to bow down. And it's not just kneeling before, although that is the picture in the image here. It's recognizing that the king has authority over me and that I'm called to live in light of that truth. Let me ask you a question. Which character best reflects you in the story? We have people like Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, people um, who do not have a relationship with the Lord God. And if you're one of these first two, maybe you're indifferent to Christianity and and the the message of the gospel. Maybe maybe you're someone who's been hostile to the gospel. The, The invitation is this to you from Jesus. Kneel and make him your king. Kneel and make him your king. Doesn't mean that you'll understand everything about who God is, but it means that as you grow in your faith, you will understand more and more that he is God and we are not. He invites you to kneel and to make him your king. You can say to God today, God, I have sinned. Forgive me. God sent Jesus in order to pay the penalty of sin and death that was ours because of our sin. There's only one way we come to the Father, and that's through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to to the Father except through me. The message for even the person hostile to God is come to me, Jesus says. Trust my death and my resurrection to pay for all the offense to God and walk in light of who you are, a person made in my image and a child of God through faith in the Lord Jesus and what he has done. Those are the first two characters. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, the question for us is this. What does your worship look like? What does your worship look like? I love it. The the Magi walk in, they see, boom, they're down. Because what leads first in their life is we are here to worship. Which means, God, whatever you say, here we are. We want to be faithful. We want to be obedient. But they bring these gifts as well, right? They, they bring these coins. We presume coins. It could have been gold and oh, a number of things. Gold in the ancient period was a valuable form of currency, all right? It was one of the standards of the day. So when you brought gold, you brought a lot. You brought some significant wealth and backing. It's not just a, oh, here's, here's my penny for you that's worth one cent, according to the American dollar. It's, here's something of incredible extravagance and worth that I'm bringing to a king. You have frankincense. Here's some frankincense from Jerusalem. 
Frankincense was a rosin obtained from balsam trees in the area of Arabia. Now, what they would do is they, they'd have to go, they have to cut part of the tree, and then it would kind of like seep out like sap, and then they would harvest it from there. And they would have these things. And it took a lot of time and effort to manufacture, not to manufacture, but to harvest. It was very costly, especially due to the supply and shipping costs. What's interesting about frankincense is it's one of the few items that are used for incense in the temple of God. And so when the priests go in, Scripture says, one of the things that they light, and and you are not to make this incense for any other place except for in the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. They would bring in this mixture of frankincense and a couple of different spices, and this would be burned as an offering before the Lord. This was expensive, costly stuff. What's also interesting about frankincense is it's never used for sin offerings. It's always used for fellowship offerings. And since ancient times, we find in Exodus chapter 30, it was used in the worship of Yahweh. So they bring this fragrance, they bring this, um, this amazing, expensive rosin that's used in the worship of Yahweh to the one who is Yahweh incarnate as an offering of worship. And then you have myrrh. Now, in the ancient times, myrrh had several, uh, a number of uses. Uh, one of the things it's used for is incense in Exodus 30. It's also used for perfume in Psalm 45. It's used as a cosmetic in Esther chapter 2. It's used as an anesthetic in Mark 15. But what I found interesting was in John 19, it's used to embalm Jesus' body after he had died. You have Joseph of Arimathea who comes and he brings, I think it's 75 pounds of myrrh and other spices. Just think about that. That's, that's like a couple barbell plates if you're way left. That's 75 pounds. That's, not a, that's like a small child. And they bring this, this myrrh to Jesus. And in, in Joseph of Arimathea's case, he brings and he embalms Jesus' body later in his life for burial. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Myrrh was also obtained from trees in the Arabian desert in a similar fashion to frankincense. Here's the point. We could talk more about gold and frankincense and myrrh and all these things. The worship of the Magi encompassed their whole manner of life. These are amazing elements and tokens to celebrate the arrival of the child but they weren't all that they brought. What they brought first and foremost was their selves, themselves. They, they demonstrated that they had a life committed to worship. It wasn't a life that was committed to um, finding the trappings and all the material things and trying to amass however much gold or however much frankincense or however much myrrh that they possibly could in order to pad their bank account. It wasn't something that they had to stay home about. They had to get up. They had to go. They had to bring a gift. But what led with all of this and all these tokens was we are here to worship. We are here to serve. We are here to give honor and glory to this baby, this king. And the question for us today, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this. What does your worship look like? 
Jesus says it this way a little bit later in the Gospels. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, they must take up their cross and follow me. The call of being a Christian, the call of following Jesus, is not one of merely assenting to a doctrinal belief. It's one of believing that Jesus died and rose again to pay for my sins, and as a result, there's only one thing that I can do. Only one thing. Worship. Respond to the greatness and glory of God in your life. It's interesting. I don't think I have this photo. No, I don't. So what's interesting is you have um, within a couple miles of Bethlehem, you have this huge Herodian fortress. If you were in Bethlehem, you would be able to look and you'd be able to see, oh, that's where Herod's fortress is. The Magi could have gone a whole bunch of different places. Where did they go? To God himself. Where will we bring our worship this week? Where will we bring our lives this week for the glory of Christ? It's my prayer for you and for myself that as we enter into this week and we enter into this next year, we will learn what it means to worship every moment of our days. That sounds like impossible, and it is without the help of God. Um, one of the reasons I appreciate my alarm, I left my phone in my office today, but one of the reasons I appreciate my alarm going off at 10 a.m. every single day, this reminder to pray is it kind of jolts me out of thinking about whatever I'm thinking about to say, wait, I'm actually here for a reason. If you set an alarm on your phone for 10 a.m., I didn't hear any today, I must have been silenced. Um, if you set a 10 a.m. alarm or another alarm, you gather to worship. You gather to read the scriptures. Begin your prayer this way, adoring God for who he is. So, some of you know this, this Acts prayer, adoration, confession, um, thanksgiving, and supplication. We spend a lot of our life in supplication, as is good, because it's biblical. Begin with Adoration. Your 10 a.m. alarm goes off to pray. Begin by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Say, God, I'm here. I'm here for you. You are holy. You are good. You are righteous. You keep your word. God, you are faithful. We bless you. May our lives resemble and reflect a God who gave his all for us by giving our all for him in worship, and in praise, and in adoration. Worship team, go ahead and come on up as we begin to close. I want to pray with us. Father, thank you for meeting us here. God, we thank you that even amidst this world, especially amidst this world, you call us not to a life of pursuing ourselves. You actually call us to deny ourselves and to follow you. God, we can't follow you without your help. We, we cannot follow you in our own strength, and so we trust you, God, today through the working of your Spirit to show us the areas in our life where we're clenching and we're holding on to ourselves. God, for some of us, that may be in the area of 
of family. Some of us, that may be in the area of profession or job or school. God, for some of us, that may be in the area of finances or of material or of, um, of sports or whatever it is, God. Would you show us where we've not put you first and we've bowed our knee and we've made you greater than all the other things in our life? Thank you, God, that your mercy meets us here today. And God, that you give grace as we seek to follow you. We bless you, Lord. Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.